Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is the New Books Network. I'm Natalia Shpilova Said, one of the hosts on the Literary Studies channel. My guest today is Emily Petemann, Assistant Professor of American Literature at the University of Constance, uh, Germany. And today we're discussing her book, The Musical Novel Imitation of Musical uh, Structure, Performance, and Reception in Contemporary Fiction, which was first published in 2014 by Boydell and Brewer, but a new edition um, has already uh, come out. Uh, and uh, uh, Emily, uh, with Boydell and Brewer, published a paperback edition of this of this book. Well, congratulations, Emily, and uh, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, before we discuss your uh, book, um, do you mind um, telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am, as you said, I'm currently um, assistant professor of American literature at the University of Constance here in Germany. Um, I'm, at the moment, I'm a research fellow at our Institute for Advanced Study, um, but I previously taught both in Konstanz and before that in Göttingen. Um, my PhD is from the University of Konstanz, which I earned in 2012, and I've also studied at Wellesley College in Massachusetts and um, at Yale University. Um, not sure what else you'd like to know. Uh, well, uh, what are your current um, research interests? Well, um, of course, as you can tell from the topic of my book, Mm -hmm. I'm very much interested and active in word and music studies, uh, but I've also worked on gothic literature, film musicals, and my uh, most recent projects have been related to nonsense literature. Uh, So would you tell us a little bit about this project, the musical novel? How did it evolve? And um, I guess it's somehow connected with your musical background? Um, Yes. Uh, Well, I have always been interested in music, uh, though I never studied it in a formal sense. My degrees are in literature and linguistics rather than in music. But in a seminar on Aldous Huxley several years ago, I worked on the project of musicalizing fiction that he outlines in his novel Point Counterpoint. And that got me interested in how texts can engage with music. And so I began to look at other novels that do something similar to that. And that led me to develop a theory of how novels can imitate music structures, which became my dissertation, and then eventually this book. Well, I think um, your background is very interesting, especially in terms of this um, uh, project um, that uh, involves both literature and music. You mentioned that um, one of areas of your expertise is is linguistics as well. And uh, linguistics, well, of course, means some uh, language studies, and language is somehow um, affiliated with sound. So I believe this kind of combination was quite helpful. Sure. And I think that the, the my linguistics background is especially visible in the kinds of theoretical approaches I took to this topic. Um, I use semiotics uh, quite a bit in, um, in my analyses. And uh, so you can really see this focus on, on structures as growing out of my linguistics background, I think. Um, although I've supplemented that with a focus on the role of the reader, which um, I think goes a little bit beyond that initial structuralist um, take on things. 
Yeah, that was uh, something that I was curious about. So your project emerges on the borders of various disciplines. The music and literature collaboration is the most obvious. So how do you define the overlapping of different fields? Um, well, this definitely is an interdisciplinary project because I'm looking at how the, the literary form can uh, relate to a neighboring art form, um, that of music. And so I guess it's in a way, there's a parallel between what these novels do in drawing on music and what I do with my own project, um, in that the text remains a work of literature, even as it explores musical form. And my study remains firmly located in literary studies and literary analysis, even as it is drawing on musicological theory um, and, um, and, and study in that field. It still remains a work of literature, though. And I've been very very much aware of um, my own limitations when it comes to dealing with musicological terms and so forth, since that's not my formal training. Uh, but I made um, an effort to define terms carefully and to avoid the kind of impressionism you sometimes see in literary study uh, that deals with the neighboring arts. Um, but what's really helped me with this interdisciplinarity is that I'm very active in the field of word and music studies, which really is um, an interdisciplinary community that incorporates both, uh, well, that includes both musicologists and literary scholars. Um, and for example, I'm in a research network now called Americana, which studies aesthetics, performance, and authenticity of American popular music. And that also draws on half musicologists and half American studies, um, cultural studies and literature uh, people so that we can really learn from each other about how neighboring fields might view the same phenomena. Well, yeah, well, your book is very detailed in terms of describing um, not only theoretical points, but musical terms as well. And you approach that area very carefully. And um, that that was something that I appreciated when reading the book. So will you tell us a little bit about um, your book? Uh, what books, what, what texts did you choose for the analysis? And uh, why um, you chose those books in particular? Okay, well, um, my main focus was from the beginning was on texts that imitate musical forms and not just dealing with music on the level of content. So my first um, question in approaching potential texts for analysis was, is there really a pervasive imitation of music in this novel? And then there were many more than those I was able to deal with. So I decided to further narrow it down by looking at particular types of music that were um, that were imitated in the text. So I have two groups that um, serve as sort of case studies of how a text can imitate music. I have texts that are based on jazz and texts that are based on the structures of Bach's Goldberg variations, um, which allows me to compare novels dealing with a whole genre of music, the jazz novels, and those dealing with a specific piece, um, in the case of the Goldberg texts. At the same time, it also allows me to contrast a 20th century popular art form and a, an 18th century European classical music tradition. Um, so I think while this is not representative of the entire body of musical novels out there, it does give me a rather um, um, a diverse enough field in order to make some, some claims about the ways that texts deal with music in general. Um, so, uh, what are the main differences and similarities between the perception of a musical uh, text and a literary text? Well, I 
think the most obvious is probably that we perceive a text as a written object um, printed on the page generally, whereas uh, music is perceived as an auditory or acoustic phenomenon. We don't tend to think of the musical notation as being the music itself, but rather the performance is what is really the music itself. Uh, and literature may, of course, also be performed, obviously, in the case of drama or um, poetry readings or even the silent performance of a text in the reader's mind. Um, but we still tend to think of the printed page as being the text. Um, so that that is a, a bit of a difference in the way we approach approach these two media. But in terms of similarities, they both have this tension between a fixed version, some kind of notation, and a version that only emerges in interaction with the recipient. Um, but the dynamic is different since the reader has a different degree of control over the reading of a text than a listener does with regard to a piece of music. Um, and of course, they both unfold in time, making them temporal rather than primarily spatial arts, in contrast to, say, the visual arts, which tend to be um, more spatial in nature. Uh, and what about uh, time? Uh, I, I, I believe you mentioned somewhere in your book that time uh, also somehow shapes the perception of the uh, literary texts and um, musical texts. Uh, the fact that um, with with a musical uh, text, it's some immediate uh, experience, and with a literary texts, it's some uh, well, it's it's an immediate immediate experience as well. But still, um, it can uh, somehow be more flexible in terms of uh, uh, time negotiations. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, for example, the way we tend, well, we have to, I have to qualify this a bit because we approach different pieces of music in, or different musical contexts in different ways. It's a big difference whether I'm hearing a performance in a concert hall um, or whether I'm listening to a CD that I can stop and uh, start again at my own at my own leisure. But generally, when we listen to a piece of music, it continues at its own pace. And I, as a listener, don't have any direct control, don't usually have direct control over that pacing. Um, although, again, there is some variation there. But with the text, of course, I can stop, I can put it down and continue reading at another time. So uh, there's, a, there is a difference there. Um, I might choose to skim rather than read um, very attentively, um, which will change the pacing and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, but I also looked at time in connection with the kind of time that's implied by different musical forms in these texts. And I found that the texts tended to think about time as cyclical or um, circular in some way um, because of the f musical forms that they were using as models, especially the theme and variations form um, in the case of the Goldberg novels, that this theme and variations pattern, and especially with Bach's return to the aria da capo at the end of the piece, suggests uh, circularity, that this cycle could start again at the beginning and continue. And these novels tend to reflect on that quite a bit in terms of references to the calendar and other cycles um, that, that that play an important role in these in these novels. So would you give us some sense of those um, books that you included uh, for this uh, analysis? Just maybe a couple of names of those books, just for us to have some understanding um, how you approach these texts. Because, well, your book is divided into a couple of um, segments where you concentrate either on structure elements in terms of the analysis of the musical and uh, the fictional or literary and on the content uh, <clears throat> level uh, so and those segments are uh, separate uh, 
uh, and uh, when I was uh, when I started uh, reading your book, um, I was envisioning something like uh, Kerouac's on the road, uh, but you uh, mentioned it briefly. Um, so I was uh, intrigued by this kind of selection that you mm-hmm. um, offer. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, as I said, the the main principle was the that I was looking for novels that were really extensively using musical forms in their structure throughout the text. So uh, I, I did look at um, On the Road from, um, by Kerouac, which people have, have considered a jazz novel, but I didn't get the impression that it was really using jazz structures on, a, on an extensive level, although one could apply this model to an, analyzing that novel as well. Um, some of the ones that I did include um, are Toni Morrison's Jazz, um, or um, Zam Wilson Cartier's novels Bebop Rebop and from 1987 and Muse Echo Blues from 1991, um, Stanley Crouch's Don't the Moon Look Lonesome from 2000, or um, a series of novels by Albert Murray beginning with Train Whistle Guitar in 1975. Um and, and going all the way up until The Magic Keys in 2005. Um, so there were a total of, of 11 novels I had all to, together. Uh, sorry, 11 jazz novels. Um, and then I also had several, based on the Goldberg variations, um, five novels by Nancy Huston, um, Thomas Bernhardt, Richard Powers, uh, Rachel Cusk, and Gabriel Josipovici. Um, but again, I decided to use the piece of music that was imitated and the extent of the structural imitation as a, a, a selection criterion and choosing which novels to include. But certainly there are many others that would fit in here um, as well. And I hope that this model is one that can be applied to the analysis of other texts um, beyond this this fairly small selection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, um, I'm I'm not a musician, <laughs> and um, uh, it's quite uh, well. It's quite easy for me to follow, for example, some content borrowings uh, from music into literature. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the structural level, I don't think that I will be competent enough to to, to speak about that. Uh, but uh, do you believe that these uh, structural imitations are intentional, or how does this kind of collaboration between uh, musical borrowings on a structural level uh, work with uh, textual, like literary um, uh, fragments. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is a, a potential um, criticism of this kind of analysis is that you could say that I'm over-interpreting these kinds of structural forms into the text. I think in these cases, though, if you look at them closely, it's um, fairly clear that this is too extensive to be a coincidence in terms of the parallels between musical forms and the um, and the way that the texts are structured. Um, and especially the thematization of music, the fact that music is so pervasive on the level of content in most of these texts, points the reader's attention towards these musical forms and and encourages us to look for those parallels. Um, so, for example, the jazz novels all involve jazz on some level on the content of the music, um, in, of the content of the text. Um, in the Goldberg novels, there is really... Yeah, really, all of them also have music um, at at least some level, and they very often have very explicit references to the particular piece of music that's involved. So of the Goldberg novels, three of them have the word Goldberg or a variant Mm -hmm. of it in the title, Um, and it it is – it's it's not a coincidental similarity between these. these. Um, And – 
there are many different types of structures that the text can imitate too, and and I chose to to um, structure my model in such a way as to consider different levels of music and different types of elements that can be involved, um, that can be imitated by text, and then to consider what textual strategies or devices are used in order to imitate those features. Um, so it can range from elements of sound, such as rhythm and timbre, through various kinds of structures, microstructural or macrostructural features, from such as riffs, call and response, structure of an album, theme and variations, numerical patterns, and so, and so forth. And then elements of the performance situation, whether that's improvisation, audience inter interaction or responses, or even the mediality of a particular recording that is uh, that plays a role in the text. So we can compare this on a more um, differentiated, um, in, in a more differentiated way. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about this improvisation idea. So when uh, musicians improvise, right, there is no editing, especially if it's a, a live performance. But in terms of writing a book, even if you improvise, there is probably some sort of editing afterwards. Mm -hmm. Sure. In the case of a novel, these texts are not really improvised. Um, they are fixed. They are. Um, right. There's no reason to believe that they have not been edited um, before being published in this form. Um, so this is an attempt to imitate improvisation. It is not actually reproducing mm -hmm. the strategy of or mm -hmm. the technique of improvisation. Um, so to some extent, these musical structures in the text are really just analogies or it's a metaphor um, that they are using. Um, on the other hand, th they do this because they are trying to create a similar effect to the improvised performance. So texts that are interested in improvisation will try to create a distinctive narrative voice that gives readers the impression that they are making up the story as they go along and that the story can change as it develops rather than being predetermined and set in advance. Of course, that's not actually the case, but that is the impression that they, that they evoke through these kinds of narrative strategies. Uh, well, uh, your your book offers a very detailed analysis of those uh, borrowings, but are somehow connected with Bach's uh, Goldberg variations. Um, how do you interpret this kind of interest to this particular work, and of course the richness of the uh, of uh, Bach's uh, work in general? Well, the Goldberg variations are a really interesting case in musical fiction precisely because uh, no other piece has been uh, imitated to the same extent. Um, I found uh, these five novels that I analyzed, but also several others that it figures in prominently to different to differing degrees, um, at least one drama, a radio play, even an <laughs> X-Files episode. So the, the Goldberg variations, there's something about them that really interests writers, that strikes a chord. Um, and I, I think to some extent it's um, probably the appeal of the theme and variations as a form that is relatively easy to translate into text um, in comparison to some others. If you were focusing on harmonies, for example, it would be a little bit harder to, to find a textual parallel. But the theme and variations is a pattern that um, are a structure that I think works pretty well in text. Um, but... Interestingly, there are other themes and vari many other themes and variations in music that have not had the same resonance. Um, I think that to some extent, it's also because of the mathematical nature of this particular piece um, mm. that it is so regular in its patterns um, that it has 
And for example, every third can uh, every third variation is a canon at increasing intervals um, throughout the thirty variations. So you have this, this great mathematic mathematical regularity, um, which is an interesting constraint for a writer to set themselves. Then um, modeling this on Bach's work and saying, okay, if I have very rigid constraints, how can I express my creativity within that constraint? And that ends up being a theme that a lot of these texts reflect on quite explicitly, is how creativity and structure, uh, chaos and order, how they might work together, um, and how an artist can express themselves within such constraints. Um, and although that's not restricted to the novels based on the Goldberg variations, you find very similar thematic concerns in some of the jazz novels where they think about um, a an innovative jazz musician character as also struggling with the tension between chaos and creativity, order and um, and freedom. Um, in, for example, Michael Andachi's Coming Through Slaughter or um, Jack Fuller's The Best of Jackson Payne, which both deal with uh, jazz musicians. Um, and it it deals it shows them as being struggling with with this precise uh, tension. Uh, would you say that there are some patterns for um, imitating some certain musical works, uh, depending on what time period um, writers write? So, in other words, um, do music elements incorporated into literary texts vary depending on the time period and style preferences? Oh, okay. Um, well, my study didn't focus specifically on um, a historical perspective, mm-hmm. but uh, it does make sense to assume that texts from a different period, or from different periods, will have different interests or different um, styles, or perhaps be interested in different kinds of music, or put that music to different uses. Mm-hmm. Um, one develop well. One one aspect that I've noticed is that there are really two distinct poles um, when it comes to understandings of music, um, either a very romantic conception of music as transcendent, um, you have the romantic genius archetype and so forth, in contrast with the very formalist approach to music, where music is structures and internal intrinsic references and no referent outside itself and so forth. So these different ideas of musical meaning have shifted historically um, and, and are more or less associated with different periods, but they also coexist. You really can see both tendencies, even within these texts that I've looked at um, from within a 30 to 40 year period. Um, so there are some periods will have a more of a focus on a romantic conception of music and others more on a formalist conception of music, but they, they do overlap and, um, uh, and coexist as well. Mm-hmm. So you already touched uh, a little bit upon um, jazz borrowings, but uh, well, uh, I would like to ask you this um, question about jazz and writing in general. Do you uh, believe that writing in general can be compared to jazz performance, for example? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by that, um, or in what way. The, um, I mean, these these writers or these texts, at least, um, do present the writing of a novel or the writing of a biography as being somehow in parallel 
to um, jazz performances and jazz composition in performance, um, especially in texts like Andachi's Coming Through Slaughter and um, Fuller's uh, The Best of Jackson Payne, in which you have this explicit paralleling of the musician figure and the writer figure. So we have, for in The Best of Jackson Payne, you have a, um, a musicologist who is, is trying to write a biography of the fictional jazz musician um, Jack Jackson Payne, and we hear him talking about the music and talking about the process of writing the book at the same time so that um, we see these two as being similar. And this kind of meta-reference, this metafictional um, quality is something that really all the musical novels I've seen um, share. That by t- reflecting on how music works or what the musician is like or the, how music is structured and ordered, it allows for a self-reflection um, of how the text works and what the writer's task is and how the reader engages with the text. Um, you get this kind of meta-reference that is provoked by the intermedial quality of these texts. So in that sense, um, certainly jazz is held up as a model for writing in these texts. But the same is also true of the Goldberg variations in, the, in those novels. So when we read a novel with this idea in mind that a novel can somehow uh, include some musical structures or include some musical uh, content, it really uh, gives some additional dimensions for interpreting text in, uh, texts in general. So uh, how does intermediality, in your opinion, change the way we read and the way we listen to music? Well, um, really, this is um, the kind of self-reflection, the meta-referential reflection that is provoked by the intermedial aspects of the text. So by foregrounding its structures, by doing unexpected things, um, for example, some of these texts are quite experimental in their attempt to imitate and reproduce musical structures, um, that causes the reader to sort of pause and reflect on what is so unexpected about this text? How do texts work um, in more generally? And so you get this meta-reference, um, this, this reflection um, on what the text itself can do um, that the intermedial qualities of the text really provoke um, in the reading experience. Um, you also see that, though, with other media. Um, so texts that imitate painting, for example, will also often have these kinds of parallels between the arts on a content and thematic level um, that is also related to the fact that they're imitating another art form. So did you have a chance to teach these musical novels? Yeah, um, actually, I've gotten to teach some of them um, a few times now in undergraduate seminars, um, which poses interesting challenges, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I found that um, some of these texts strike students as really very difficult to deal with. Um, Some are, as I said, rather experimental um, or fragmentary, um, and and beginning students might struggle with with that. I'm also teaching um, primarily non-native speakers in my Mm -hmm. classes and and beginning students, so um, I've had to be kind of selective about which texts to introduce in the classroom. I had very good results with Toni Morrison's Jazz, um, but they they struggled a bit more with Andachi's Coming Through Slaughter, for example. Um, but I found that it was also a really good opportunity to introduce students to music that they were not familiar right. with. Um, 
my students don't bring any jazz background with them to the classroom, and um, so I've tried to to introduce a course of guided listenings to accompany our readings, so that they can um, sort of go back and forth between the texts and the music that the texts are dealing with, um, and so have a, a multimedial multimedial experience of this um, of this art. Uh, would you give some tips on how to teach this musical novel? So, do you bring some music into class, and uh, do, you, yeah. uh, do do those uh, discussions include some uh, comparative uh, work between, well, of course, uh, literary texts and musical texts? Mm-hmm. And uh, if students don't have any uh, musical background, um, how can we facilitate that kind of conversation? That really is a challenge, um, and it does take extra time because I, I have brought in music in the classroom, um, and so you, I have to leave time for the listenings. Um, I can't just assume that they know what blues form is or that they have, know what a riff is, but I have to play them a couple of, um, of a couple of examples and point out the particular structures that are relevant for the text we're looking at. Um, leave extra time for them to explore this and um, and discuss it, but. Um, on with some of the more obvious cases that that has worked quite well um i've had somewhat better results actually dealing with um, blues and jazz poetry than with these prose texts but the prose texts the discussion tends to slip relatively quickly into um, plot analysis and character uh, characterization mm-hmm. and things like that rather than focusing on the structures they're more used to looking at structures um, in in poetry so I've found that a little they're a little bit more receptive to that um, but but you can do it with novels too uh, and uh, what poetry works were you including into your readings? Oh, there's a lot of great um, blues and jazz poetry by um, Langston Hughes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of really excellent anthologies um, of, of blues and jazz poems too. Although I'm afraid I don't have the titles off the top of <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, but um, yeah, there there is really a, a lot of a lot of good material to work with there if you start looking a bit. Are your current projects um, connected with this kind of work, comparative work between literature and music? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with I'll start with the no part <laughs> because that's a little bit easier to answer. Um, the German academic system is actually such that the second uh, major research project has to be something completely different from the oh, first, mm-hmm. um, which is quite different from in um, in the United States or in in England or other countries where you build upon your research more directly um so i had to look for something that was not musical fiction um, that was that was quite different um and i ended up starting to work on nonsense poetry and to have a shift of genre and i'm also considering a, a longer historical period going back into the 19th century um But in some ways, this is actually still related um, because I've noticed that one of the things I'm interested in in nonsense is how it is a particularly poetic mode that draws attention to form more than content um, of, of any given message. And it engages in a particular kind of play with the reader's expectations of how texts make sense. So we have a tension between um, an, a, a suggestion of sense or even multiple senses and a suggest and an impression that it doesn't make sense at all. So this, this tension is part of how nonsense works. And I think that the more experimental musical novels 
do something similar, mm. that they also are foregrounding form over content and challenging the reader's ability to interpret and make sense of what they read. We have, have to recognize a certain pattern in order to um, make sense of, of unexpected forms. So I guess um, it, to some extent, nonsense is perhaps just a, a more extreme tendency uh, than than is already in already in musical fiction. Well, is nonsense some sort of a variation of uh, uh, absurd? Mm-hmm. It's related to the absurd, certainly. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, mm-hmm. and you're looking into the differences or some developments or. Oh, well, at one point I thought I was going to do a very, very large project on nonsense. It's since gotten a bit smaller, but I was um, uh, initially very interested in looking at how nonsense is related to surrealism, Mm -hmm. to the absurd, um, and that there are similar tendencies, similar strategies um, for undermining our conventional sense-making approaches um, in each of these cases, but that they're put, of course, to very different functions, different uses, um, and also addressed to different audiences. Um, You tend to think of a a child audience when it comes to nonsense literature, although that's not always the case. Um, But uh, then you also have these avant-garde forms like Dada and Surrealism, which um, are clearly not children's literature. So you you have uh, very different different, um, contexts. But that there are similar similar aspects of undermining our, our sense making as as readers. Um, but I, I've had to narrow it down a bit because it was just it was too broad to be to be manageable. So I'm focusing now um, really on American nonsense literature proper. Um, but I am still interested in how that relates to surrealism and to the absurd. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned that this uh, nonsense element can also be uh, incorporated into the analysis of uh, musical novel. And um, uh, I was thinking about uh, those um, uh, books that you chose for the analysis, uh, and of course they're all contemporary. And I'm wondering if um, uh, some musical borrowing, some musical in terms of the structure, for example, can be found in the literature of the nineteenth century, let's say, or, or uh, are these uh, borrowings structural um, are more relevant for the contemporary level? where we talk about some postmodern literature and where we talk about some interdisciplinary connections and um, um, like collaborations. Uh, although I think uh, we can also find those elements in the literature of the 19th century. So uh, have you, um, um, have you, uh, did you have a chance to look at those works uh, from, from the past, so to speak? Well, I think that... Um you're right that, that we can find precursors of this quite a bit earlier than the text that I looked at in this um, in this study. Certainly, the m- m- period of modernism offers um, uh, offers many other examples. Um, James Joyce has been compared with this, and as I said, Aldous Huxley was my starting point in looking at musical fiction. Um, I don't think you'll find very much going back into the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that this kind of focus on structure is something that really emerges more with the modern period. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you go back into, say, Romanticism, you'll have a different idea of music. Mm -hmm. But you do find writers very much interested in music throughout the 19th century. um, But they do something different with it that's not so much an imitation of form, um, but holding up music more an ineffable ideal. Um, you get statements like, um, well, leaders, all art clearly aspires to the condition of music, for example. This idea that music goes beyond 
the kind of meaning we find in other more concrete arts. Uh, that's something that the 19th century is very much interested in. Um, you do find structural imitation to some extent in the works of E.T.A. Hoffmann, um, but I don't think that there's nearly as much of that kind of structural imitation until you get into about the modernist mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. So it's more about this kind of uh, uh, breaking the rules and breaking the conventions, which are more relevant for the 20th century rather than for the 19th century. But there are, there are all those violations of rules and yeah. conventions. Yeah in the 19th century as well so I was, sure. I was I just think the aspects of the, the, the aspects of music that writers are interested in um, are somewhat different and so you don't get the same kind of formal experimentation um, mm -hmm. in in earlier periods yeah I was in general I was thinking but, about <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> no I just I don't want to overgeneralize though uh, because um, that's these are rather broad sweeping sweeping remarks about about entire periods I wouldn't want to to pin it down quite that that much <laughs> So I was thinking about Tolstoy's The Croiza Sonata, and uh, of course, in terms of the uh, content um, material, there are a lot of probably illusions and some overlappings, but uh, in terms of the structure, so maybe, maybe, but like I said, I'm not a musician, so I'm not competent to speak about that. <laughs> Well, um, the Quartz Sonata is um, is often held up as an example of musical fiction or um, an, an earlier case of this kind of thing, except if you look at it closely, it really is important in terms of content analogies um, and, and plays a role in the plot of the story, but it is not actually sonata form. Mm -hmm. um, if the story had been written, structured around a sonata, it would be a very different text than what we actually have. So it's, it's really not a good example of, of structural imitation, although it is definitely a case uh, that shows that the 19th century was already <laughs> very much interested in, um, in music. Well, uh, thank you so much, Emily, for this very inspiring and fascinating uh, conversation and um, uh, good luck with all your current projects. Thank you very much.